Well, good morning. A little echoey. Uh, we went up to Sullivan Lake Friday. Actually, we were invited to go to Sullivan Lake. Um, uh, Robbie and Katie, so our son and daughter-in-law, they called Friday morning and talking with my wife Tammy and said, uh, <clears throat> hey, we're going to take Matt and Shannon's kids up to Sullivan Lake. There's room if you want to go. So we kind of got done with the farming that we had to do, and or I did anyway, raking some hay. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, so Tammy's telling me all this, and uh, and I said, uh, I said, oh, maybe I'll go too. And four or five minutes later, after she had gotten back up off of the ground after passing out from that announcement that I would go with her and actually take a day off from work, um, Amen. Amen. Uh, we uh, loaded up and went up to Sullivan Lake, of which, so you look around, and maybe this is like your first time or first few times you're like, where did everybody go? Like, did we miss the rapture? You didn't miss the rapture. Uh, the, the chairs are empty because about, what, 30% of our congregation is camped out up at Sullivan Lake and uh, having a great time. And uh, <clears throat> what we have that they don't have is uh, air conditioning. The only, conditioned, they, uh, the only conditioned air that they have up there is what's mixed with hydrogen uh, in the lake. So, um, but it was a great time. And, uh, and uh, they were scheming and dreaming Friday evening as we were having dinner on how we could possibly do a church service up there, um, which is a wonderful place. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, just uh, I'll close this out with Sullivan Lake. It's not uh, Sullivan Lake Campground. There's not that many people there. And uh, Dan Frost was saying it's because the border's closed, and usually you have a lot of Canadians come down to camp in the U.S. because it's a lot cheaper. And, uh, man, there was empty camp spots all through the place. So they really kind of had the run of it, which was a lot of fun. And with that crowd, uh, they need a little extra space. It's kind of, they kind of take over. They take that little uh, dominion mandate out of Genesis pretty serious, I think, so... It's good, for, it's good for them. Hey, this smoking hot weather, a little service announcement. Drink a lot of water. Make sure your pets and your animals have lots of water. Stay out of the heat. Wear a hat. Uh, take care of yourselves. I don't want to hear anybody getting sick because of the weather. And uh, it happens. Like, it can happen. It can jump on you. And it can happen even to the young people, too. You know, teenagers really susceptible to get out doing stuff and having a good time. And, oh, we can handle the... The heat, not, not, not once it starts pushing into triple digits. Uh, if you're not used to triple digit heat, of which most of us are not, uh, man, make sure you take care of yourselves and check in on, uh, on your neighbors. Did anybody besides us, I'm sure everybody besides us, got this robocall from Stevens County Sheriff's Department? Did you guys all get that? Yeah, we got this robocall about the heat wave that was coming, and it was well bolted together, well put together uh, announcement, just the, kind of the same things I just reiterated. And so, yeah, uh, we're not going to be used to the heat for this week. Um, make sure that you're well taken care of and Don't those around you. <laughs> Sometimes the pastor's wife is a little out of control. <laughs> no, it's not true. We might go to the lake. Hey, we have water flows through our property every single day. It's wonderful. All right, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're not here to talk about... Sullivan Lake, we're actually here to uh, look into God's Word and, and to uh, hear what He has for us. And, 
And uh, we've been studying, if you're not up to where we are as far as the series goes, we've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. We've made it through the first couple of chapters. Uh, Apostle Paul's been addressing issues, a variety of issues uh, that circle around church division. It was reported back to the Apostle Paul uh, that, hey, there's, there's division in Corinth, and uh, these things need to be addressed. So he writes this letter specifically to talk about uh, issues. issues. And, and you'll see there's kind, of, uh, there's kind of mile markers through the book of 1 Corinthians where he will make a statement, it has been reported to me, or I have heard, or whatever. Uh, so he's really addressing these issues, and it takes four, he really takes four chapters to talk about these different aspects of division in the church. A few of them we've covered already are leadership preference. Uh, there was a leadership preference. There was a division over cultural wisdom versus godly wisdom going on there in Corinth, a very pagan culture that uh, uh, with these brand new believers of, uh, that have never known anything different, combined with Jewish uh, people, Jewish converts to Christianity that only knew and, and, and had for 1,500 years had secluded themselves culturally uh, and the, uh, theologically. They, they kind of isolated themselves, as it were, so they only knew one thing. The culture, the uh, Greco-Roman culture, knew uh, the opposite of that. They were all into every sort of pagan worship and all of that. So there's kind of this cultural wisdom versus godly wisdom division that was going on. And if we recall last week at the end of chapter 2, we see a few things there. Um, by summary, we'll just put it this way, the gospel is proclaimed in simple terms with sharp focus. That was the Apostle Paul's way of going about it. He put it in simple terms as opposed to trying to, he says, I didn't come with worldly wisdom to try to convince you of who Jesus was. I just put it in simple terms and talked about uh, uh, Christ and Him crucified. That was the message. And that was intentional. We looked at the idea that the Spirit of God works powerfully in those that rely and depend on Him. That was the Apostle Paul's words. He says, hey, I'm, just, I'm coming with a simple message. I'm coming in weakness and in fear, trepidation. But in that, God's working powerfully to propel His message into the world. So that was kind of the, the, the mode by which he by which he ministered and was a missionary there uh, to those new believers. The third thing that uh, we can recall from last week is that God has a master plan. He has a master plan uh, that includes all of mankind being invited into the kingdom of God. And, and Paul calls this, and he's going to call it in the next, in chapter 4 also, he's going to talk about it, and he calls it the, the mystery he calls it the mystery. It was part of God's plan all along. It was hidden. It was concealed. And, 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 and people through the ages saw bits and pieces, and the prophets kind of had a bits and a piece here and there. But by and large, it was a mystery that God would incorporate uh, not just the Jewish uh, race into the kingdom, but really all of the mankind was opened up and invited into the kingdom of God. The last thing that we saw by way of review a little bit is this, is that the Holy Spirit teaches us. He pivots on this idea in talking about wisdom uh, and cultural wisdom. In the plan of God, he talks about this idea that the Holy Spirit teaches us, and he uses this phrase, comparing spiritual things 
to spiritual, comparing spiritual to spiritual. And he pivots away from cultural wisdom to spiritual wisdom in that way. And God is always in the business then. We can, we can deduct from the Word, and not just in 1 Corinthians, but all through the pages of the Bible. We can deduct this. God is always, always, always in the business of growing His people spiritually. Maturing His people spiritually. That's the way that God leads His people. Those that are regenerate, those that have put their faith and trust in Him, He's in that process. He's prompting He's leading, he's encouraging, he's comforting people to grow spiritually in their relationship with him. The other thing that we see, maybe add to that list, is this idea that Paul introduces uh, the first of three types of people starting there in 1 Corinthians 2.14 and then on into today's text. The first of three types of people. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, if you thumb back there in your, word, in your Bible or look at it on the screen, I'll read it. It says this, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man, so by comparison, by comparison, he says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. Uh, so what is it meant... The question on the table here today, or one of them is, is what does it mean when the Bible talks about the natural man? What does it mean? How, how, how do we get a definition? How do we get an understanding of what God sees as the natural man? One of the questions you may have. I definitely had it. I'll give you first my uh, homebrew definition is this. The natural man is corrupted by sin unrepentant, unregenerate, not able to receive or discern the things of the Spirit of God. That's kind of my two cents worth. I'll read it one more time. The natural man is corrupted by sin, unrepentant, unregenerate in that, uncorrupt, in that corruption, and is not able, 1 Corinthians 2.14, to receive or discern the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, put it simply in terms... There's a whole block, there's a massive block there for the natural man into the realm of the wisdom of God. They might be reaching for it, and we can see, and we can look through the pages of history, how people have tried to, to reach and grab the wisdom of God in different ways and in different forms, thinking this is the right way to God, that's the right way to God, what's the smartest way to God, how can we you know, make something happen here so that we can obtain the wisdom of God? The Bible's really clear. The natural man is not able to receive or discern the things of the Spirit of God. Maybe an easier way to put it is how Jesus put it in the Gospel of John chapter 3, is that they're not born again. Like that's, that's the natural man, is a person that's not born again, the Holy Spirit of God, and have Christ's presence, have the Holy Spirit in them, living, guiding them, leading them, directing them, correcting them, times rebuking them, one of the best descriptions of the natural man is found right in the pages of the, the Bible. So I love it when the Word of God explains in one part, it explains, it gives a fuller picture of what another part brings up as a question. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 brings up 
kind of this question, what is the natural man? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'll give you a, I'll give you a picture. Here's a picture of what the natural man looks like. So you take your pen, your pencil. I would never be afraid to write in a Bible. I wouldn't add words to the Bible, but write in the pages, the margin of the pages, or highlight these ideas. Look at the description of how Paul describes the natural man. Romans 1 verses 18 is where I'll start. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So three descriptions right there. The ungodly, the unrighteous, those who would suppress the truth. There's intentionality in that phrase. Verse 19 says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So God's revealed himself, Paul says here in Romans. He's revealed himself. They've chosen not to acknowledge who God is in that. And not only have they chosen to say, nope, not for me. They've said, nope, I'm going to suppress that in the culture around me. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, <clears throat> his invisible attributes are, clearly, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. Just the, just the world around us, the world that we live in, the beauty, and we live in a beautiful part of the world. Wonderful, gorgeous place. I've been to different places. I've been to different countries. Uh, this place has a distinct beauty, uh, a distinct part about it, as do all the other places. And these invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So those that, that just notice, those that just take time to notice God's creation are still without excuse. Now verse 21 says, because, and here's a few more descriptions of the natural man, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and <clears throat> changed the glory of the incorruptible God into images made like corruptible man. Uh, essentially, he's saying uh, they got a little, as we would, were taught when we were kids, they got a little big for their britches, decided that uh, the God that created them wasn't good enough. We'll create, create our own. You look through from cover to cover in the Bible, and they call that idolatry. Anything that would take the place of God for our dependence, for our worship, for our affections, Anything that would, that, would, that would take the place of God for uh, supplying our needs, supplying our hopes and dreams, any of that falls into the category, and probably could be better defined, but it falls into this category of idolatry, and that's exactly what these people, that's exactly what the natural man does. He replaces God with an image made like corruptible man, and the birds and the four-footed animals and the creeping things. So it's not just that he builds statues and we worship other mankind or mankind or things made of man. Uh, you see all kinds of worship of the creation. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness, another description, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So you can't exchange something if you don't know what it is and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator the cre <clears throat> the creature rather than the creator excuse me 
who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26 says this, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against, for what is against nature. Likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heir, which was due. So now it turns sexual. Now it's gone sideways. Uh, and, and Paul's, by the time we get to the end of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is going to start addressing some of those types of issues. Verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only <clears throat> do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's your biblical definition of the natural man. That's how God sees the natural, what I just, when I say unregenerate, I'm thinking of Romans chapter 1. So I summarize it down. Paul really blows this thing up to cover every aspect of life in the natural man. And so where do we go from there? Where do we go from there? Probably this is probably the most single uh, greatest indictment and description of the natural man that we can find really in the Bible. We can see a lot of this type of activity plays out from the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall into sin in the garden, all the way through the pages of the Bible. We see all of this in story form, in, in uh, uh, different ways and in different aspects of the patriarchs all the way through the times of the prophets, the judges, uh, kings, you name it. You see all of this type of activity that goes on. Paul's saying, hey, that's all indication of the natural man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describes some of the Corinthian Christians using a different word, though. He switches the, the paradigm a little bit. The second of the third descriptions of mankind, he uses this word, and he does it in the context of their behavior and in the context of the lack of church unity. Still, we, we have to remember, we have to, we have to absorb and read this, still in the context of what he's talking about in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. He's talking about division. And, and all of these different little side roads that he takes, where he's talking about you know, either leadership preference, or he's talking about uh, uh, cultural wisdom versus godly wisdom, if he's talking about you know, where we're going to go here in chapter 3, they're still in underneath this heading, of division. And he's going to wrap that back around as a great teacher, as a, as a great writer, as a man of God, a, God, a man that was uh, inspired by God to write these letters to the various churches to bring correction and encouragement and, and shore things up at times, like the book of Galatians, or, or write a letter like to the Philippian church and just so encouraged by the things that they had going on. 
the Apostle Paul keeps bringing things around. He writes in a circular fashion, as it were. And so he writes, <coughs> he does, has a second description. That second description is the word carnal. And he writes that, he uses that word, he uses that image, he uses that description to identify men, and he does so in the context of their behavior and their lack of church unity. So this is not outside the church. He's not dealing with issues outside the church. He's dealing with issues inside the church, a division in the body, as it were. And let me just pause and say, I didn't go to this book to start preaching because I think somehow we have this major division issue and I'm going to solve something in us as a body. That's not it at all. Uh, We're here because I believe that that's where God led us to be. And if we can uh, grab onto now, uh, when there's not division, when there's not strife in the body, if we can have these principles in play as a fellowship, as individuals, as families, it can be applied across the board in different ways, we can have these principles that Paul's uh, bringing out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If we can have them in play, then when division starts to come our way, then when these whispery words and these fissures of thought and, and, and all of that start to come into play, and, and believe me, they do, and I spoke about that week one. This church is no, has not been friction-free over the years. I don't know a single church that has been. But if we understand what the Bible says about division, if we understand what God is saying about the unity in His church, then when those types of arrows start to fly at us, we'll know how to defend. We'll know how to put the shields up. And so this isn't about something now. Uh, Likely, it could be about something at some time. And I think that, uh, you know, I learned to drive a 18-wheeler a big rig in a safe environment. <laughs> when you got 40, 50, 100 acres of field to play around with a rig that's 60-some feet long, then it's a safe environment. It's a safe environment. And so you learn how to you know, use the clutch. You learn how to use the brake. You learn how to use the jakes. My favorite part of owning a big rig is the jakes. Right? You learn how to do that in a safe environment, an environment where it's, it's not immediately tested, so that then when I roll out onto the county roads, then when I roll out onto the highway, or if I'm hauling feed up to the dairy, then I'll know how to respond in that potential moment of crisis. I'll give you this example of why I even bring that up. I was hauling feed up to the dairy uh, six years ago, and uh, any of you that's traveled up Addie Gifford Road know that when you get to the Addie Gifford, Addie Gifford, Addie Sedonia Y, the road's called Addie Gifford from Addie to Gifford. But it's Addie Sedonia from the Addie Gifford, Addie Sedonia Y to Sedonia. If you've never been over there, just take a drive. It's wonderful. But it's a blind corner. The intersection sits behind a blind corner. So you go around this corner... Addie Gifford goes to the right. Addie Sidonia takes his turn to the left and goes up the hill. Uh, Not a lot of people in Summit Valley (laughs) stop for that stop sign. And when they don't stop... (laughs) Am I treading on thin ice? I've seen so many wrecks over the years. I was behind behind a teenager, uh, a good friend of ours. I was behind a... This is a different story. Is it possible to have a story inside a story? 
All right, here we go. Are you guys with me? Should I turn the AC back down? So everybody's comfortable? I was behind a teenager years ago that dropped her younger sister off at the summit school, was coming back down to that very intersection, failed to stop at the stop sign, and pulled forward, and a logging truck was coming down, Addie Gifford, and if she had been a split second sooner, it would have killed her. Uh, but he took her front bumper off with the tires of his log trailer. It was that close. And I'm behind her, completely helpless, thinking, don't do it, April. Don't do it, April. Don't, don't do it. Because I've seen her start to go out. And here comes this truck. And it's, it's kind of blind intersection, kind of from all three directions. But in my situation, I was going up to the dairy with a, a big rig loaded with feed, and I come around that corner, and I always, always shift down before I get to that intersection because if somebody's going to run that stop sign, I need to figure out which way I'm going to go. And there was a split second where this guy pulled out, and, and do I go right and try to make it up Addie Gifford and flop the truck over? Do I move over into the other lane and go up Addie Sedonia and risk a potential head-on because you can't see up the hill around the corner? I chose to kind of stay in my lane and just move over a fraction. And that guy's front of that guy's pickup disappeared from my view as I went by. And I just braced for impact. And I don't know what happened, but he got that baby stopped, and we didn't hit. But I say all of this to say, I say all this to, we might have impact right now. I missed a stop sign. Oh, you guys are too good. I say all that to say that the backdrop for all of that came from learning to drive a big rig in a safe environment, learning to drive out in the hay fields, learning to drive in the wheat fields, learning to handle big equipment, to know their, uh, you know, peculiarities and, and what they can do, what they can't do in the moment. That's the kind of mental image That's the type of backdrop that when I talk about and think about and we're preaching about division, that's what I'm thinking about. Church, we have to be prepared. We have got to be prepared and mature in our faith to understand how to deal with church division and things that come our way. All right. Two stories inside a story. Paul talks about carnal, the carnal man. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people. So here's your comparison. I could, <clears throat> and I, uh, brethren, so he's calling them brethren. That's significant in the context of what he's saying. Could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and I'm of another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? He asked the question. So he ties back in chapter 3, back to his very first statements in the early part of chapter 1 about these divisions over church leadership, and he uses this phrase, the carnal and he calls them the carnal men. What is he saying when he's saying carnal? A better question not to, to ask rather than what is carnal man 
is this, is what is a carnal Christian? What is a carnal Christian? And how do we know maybe it's me? You know, we could all ask ourselves that question. Hey, may, hey maybe this is me. In chapter 1, we see the Corinthian church described as called, sanctified, in Christ Jesus. Clearly, Paul was writing to saved believers, saved Christians. The problem is that they were behaving like they, <clears throat> like they had not been saved. Their attitudes and their actions were worldly. Their attitudes and their actions were like that of the natural man, yet here they were, saved believers. Now, yeah, it might be stepping on some toes, or it might be bringing to your memory particular situations in your life or in the life of uh, people that you've dealt with or, or been around that's like, hey, this kind of makes sense. Like, why were they thinking that way? Or if put, apply it to yourself. I can remember a time where I was thinking carnally since I've been saved. And I was acting worldly even though I was a Christian. So if you're in that boat, or if you've been in that boat, you'll understand kind of where this is going, where the Apostle Paul's talking about. And a carnal Christian is a saved believer, but one that has not grown spiritually. That's why he uses this first little picture. He calls them babes in Christ, unable to transition to solid spiritual food. Unable to transition to solid spiritual food. See, modern-day church, modern-day Christianity has made it easy for people to stay in spiritual infancy. Let's just put that fact out there. I, I, I'm, point, I'm pointing the finger as much at me. It's part of my job, part of my, part of my calling to help other people grow. So I'm not, I'm not coming down on you. I'll come down as easy on me. I haven't done the job that probably needs to be done over the course of the years that God's called me to be in uh, ministry as a church leader. Now that I'm getting a little older, it seems like these types of things are really pressing in on me as a matter of importance. So we're all kind of in this mode together. We're in this boat together, all of us. I could sit out in the front row real easy on this one. There's an aspect that how we can see this idea of, uh, of <clears throat> carnal Christianity really cropping up. Probably the number one indicator, or one of the maybe top five, is the mentality that's broadly accepted and experienced in the church today. And that's what is termed this, consumer Christianity. Consumer Christianity. At its base level, at the bottom of it all, that is a growing petri dish of carnality. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by carnal, by consumer Christianity? All of us are affected. All of us have experienced it to one degree or another. All of us have, have, have shared in this. It's, <clears throat> it's been taught to us. It's been displayed to us. We've been encouraged with it. And that is this. It's a me-centered worldview it's a me-centered worldview. Not a Jesus-centered worldview. Not a biblical worldview. It's a worldview that circles around me. 
And we've all been affected by it. So let's just call it out what it is, kind of the elephant in the room. We've all been affected by a me-centered worldview. And we take that type of mentality. We take the same mentality that we would go to Costco and cash and carry and Walmart. We take that same type of worldview, that same type of mentality, and we apply it in our spiritual lives. I can't get what I want over there. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. This didn't speak to me. That didn't speak to me. I wasn't encouraged. Uh, I didn't fit in. I this, I this, I that, I that. And we bounce around. We bounce around in the kingdom of God just like we bounce around shopping for the best deal on Grub. Who's got the best deal? Where can I get it the cheapest? And that's the reality of the consumer mentality in Christianity. It creates disconnects. It creates a lack of community. It, it erodes the importance of working through issues. It undermines the unity in the church when God is saying, hey, I want you guys to work this out as a group. And people are just jettisoning off because they didn't get what they wanted. So we're all been affected to one degree or another when church and when Christianity is all about me, all about what I'm getting or not getting, we're given over to this me-centered worldview that so dominates our culture. Every aspect of our culture will encourage you to do what's right for you and nobody else. That's the way things are put forth on TV. That's the way things are put forth in the news. That's the way things are put forward in every aspect of social media. You do you. Everybody else can do themselves. That's not unity. We have these same issues in Christianity today. So prevalent in the church in Corinth. How do we understand what they are? Here's a few uh, markers for what it looks like. How you know if, if it's uh, among us, so to speak. Verse 3 and 4 says, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, you're not carnal and behaving. <clears throat> you are, uh, are you not carnal, he asked, and behaving like mere men? You're, you're behaving worldly, he says. So the, 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 the proof is in the pudding. The proof that you're being carnal, he says. The proof that you're, that you're, that you're saved, but you're thinking from a worldly perspective is, the, is what's going on in your church. There's envy, strife, divisions. Paul circles back to his concern about the lack of unity in the church and identifies carnal thinking and carnal actions as the problem. There's another great passage out of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, where Paul points out the conflicting directions uh, of, uh, uh, and implications of carnal versus spiritual. He says this in Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh, the world, the worldly way of doing things, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Uh, carnal thinking will lead to death. Carnal thinking, carnal thinking as believers 
will lead to death. Spiritual thinking, on the other hand, leads to two things. What does it lead to? It leads to life, and it leads to peace. Peace. You can have peace. The rarest commodity in the world. Anybody know what the rarest commodity in the world is? The rarest commodity in the world is to have peace in your life. And you look around, you look around your world, your community, your job, uh, environment, your workplace. You look around uh, at what's going on in our culture. And the thing that's missing the most is people living a peaceful life. It's not there. It just keeps evaporating away and evaporating away and evaporating away. God says here in His Word in Romans 8, that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Corinthians, their carnal thinking actually pitted them, it actually pitted them against God. That's what Romans 8, 7 says. It's pitting them against God. In other words, what do I mean by that? If you take Romans 8, 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, their carnal thinking was putting them on opposite side of the battle with God himself. That's what carnal thinking does. There's enmity between God and that worldview, God and that system of thinking. And so where they thought they were maybe going to build the church using human wisdom, God's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. You're actually working against me. Now the third component, the third man that's described, and it's really described all through the pages uh, of first three chapters so far of First Corinthians. So you have to kind of mine them out. I'll give you a couple of cheat references to go here. But the spiritual man, my definition says this. The spiritual man is constantly under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Saved, re, uh, 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 forgiven, regenerate. We live, uh, the spiritual man lives a, a repentant lifestyle. It's not just something, oh, I, I did that, you know, 20 years ago. I repented of my sins, but there's no fruit on the tree for the last two decades. That's not the spiritual man. That's a one-time occasion that you want to, or I want to, define my spiritual walk by. That's not how it works. And nobody in their right mind would believe that that was true. For somebody that said, you know, I confess my sins, received Christ 20 years ago, and then live like hell for 20 years. That doesn't work that way. So the reality is, is that person, I'm not judging their salvation. I'm just simply saying there's no fruit on the tree. There's no evidence of a changed life. There's evidence of a one-time, you know, statement. A one-time confession. No, the spiritual man is constantly under the influence of the Holy Spirit and growing in that relationship. All right, what am I talking about? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the, the passage, the verse that we looked out to start off today. The spiritual man does the opposite of the natural man. The spiritual man receives the things of the Spirit of God. Same verse, the spiritual man spiritually discerns situations and events. The spiritual man spiritually discerns situations and events. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2, the spiritual man grows in faith and understanding of God. So there's a... <clears throat> Paul's not saying that, that, that you're, you know, every aspect of your life has to be perfect before you're spiritual. But there's growing evidence. There's, you're not who you were 20 years ago, to, to use that same 
word picture, that same metaphor. You're not who you were 20 years ago. There's an evidence, there's a trail of evidence that would lead somebody over two decades to say, wow, she's totally different. She's, he's totally a different person. So the growing in faith and understanding of God, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2. Spiritual man avoids envy, strife, and divisions. No-brainer out of 1 Corinthians 3, 3. The spiritual man avoids, knows how to deal with. Maybe avoids is not the right word. I should uh, need a pen. I need to scratch out my notes. I, I, I think that there is an aspect of avoiding Somebody that has good spiritual and biblical wisdom, he understands, she understands when to put your foot on the battlefield and when not to. Sometimes the better part of valor is to say, you know what, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to partake, so there's an aspect of avoiding there. I'm not going to take offense, whatever the case is. Either you avoid envy, strife, and divisions, or you know rightly how to deal with conflict and issues. The spiritual man, the last one that I have, sets their minds on the things of the Spirit. I drew that out of Romans 8, 5, a verse we just looked at a bit ago. A spiritual man, the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, sets their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, how is that done? Actually, if you go from Romans 8 to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you'll see where Paul says, uh, the way to that you know, spot... The way to accomplish that is to live sacrificially. And the way to live sacrificially is is that your minds, our minds, we can say all this together, our minds have to be transformed and renewed by God himself. So if we're unwilling, if we're unwilling to let God reshape our thinking and our understanding of everything, then we're just going to muddle around as believers this is what Paul was driving at with these guys. We're going to muddle around in carnality, trying to grab the best of worldly wisdom and a little bit of spiritualism and a little bit of God and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and trying to make it work. And God calls that foolishness. He calls it foolishness. So the spiritual man sets their minds on the things of the Spirit, Romans 8, 5, Romans 12, 1 and 2, as I just said, tells us how that's accomplished. Paul goes on to demonstrate the spiritual man through this idea, unity in ministry. See, there was division and leadership preference. Then there, the next thing that comes with that is division in how ministry is accomplished. Right? So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says this. He says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you've believed, as the Lord gave as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he that waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building, he says, Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let God, <clears throat> let each one take heed of how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. One of our Awana verses these kids learn all the way through. 
Verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Uh, I naturally gravitate to all the agrarian examples in the Bible. <laughs> if you haven't noticed that about me, when, 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 a, when a writer in the Word starts talking something agrarian, farming, you know, crops, uh, that was the culture, that was the day, that was what propelled the uh, economics in the first century wasn't a service-oriented society. It was a production-oriented society. So I kind of naturally gravitate to these types of things. And Paul uses a farming illustration to demonstrate how the quote-unquote favorite church leaders, so he's really kind of coming down on them in kind of a left-handed sort of a way, and how these favorite church leaders, quote-unquote, were working together for the common interests of the gospel. And he essentially says this, it's not the planter... Or the water. It's not the planter or the water that matters. He doesn't say that those things are not important. He's just saying they're not the most important. He's not diminishing his ministry or Apollos' ministry or he uses the word Cephas, Peter's ministry, or any other ministry. He's not saying they don't matter, they don't count, they're useless. He's using them by comparison to saying they're not as important. The miracle is in the grower. That's what's important. The miracle is the grower, capital G. God's the grower. God's what makes it happen. Every year since I was a kid, we stuff seeds in the ground. We, put, we work the ground. We fertilize the ground. We get it prepared just right for whatever we're putting in the ground. We put the seeds in the ground. We crank on the irrigation pump. We water like mad. We've, I'll give you an example. We turned our irrigation pump on May 4th. And it's been pumping 500 gallons a minute since May 4th. Somewhere. That's a lot of water. Do the math. I mean, we're up to like, you know, I don't know. What is that? Pushing 55, 60 million gallons? Is that right? Where's my math pro? It doesn't matter what the number is. It's a lot of water. Let me tell you what. At the end of the day, you can drive by our place and you will see that the miracle is not in those things. The miracle happens when those little tiny seeds that are dead in the ground, that are buried, I'm using church and Christian metaphor here, that are dead and buried in the ground, never to be seen again, theoretically, all of a sudden, start popping through the clay and start putting on leaves. 720,000 gallons a day since May 4th. Somebody's really good at math. It's not me. We're all pretty up on that. The miracle is not in what we do. 
The miracle is in what God does. The miracle is in what God does. The miracle is in the grower. That's what Paul's saying. And he switches metaphors right in at the beginning from an agrarian metaphor to a building metaphor, and he describes himself as the foundation guy. The foundation guy. He says, hey, I, I, we brought the foundation. For I've laid the foundation, another one builds on it, he says right there. So he's a great foundation guy. Uh, a good concrete guy is priceless, right? Wouldn't you say that? Good, a good concrete guy is priceless. Now, all of you that came in this entrance into the parking lot drove right underneath the road sign, probably didn't even notice it, just two big legs sticking up in the air. Uh, <clears throat> we're still working on getting the top of it completed, but all the, all the foundational pieces are there. It's a sign that was uh, put together in two big pieces came and they put it together. They worked on part of it in Mike Arthur's shop. And then his shop wasn't big enough at the time, it is now, but it wasn't big enough at the time to put the whole thing together. How, how tall is that thing? It's got to be 30 feet. Because my shop was 32 feet deep at the time and it just fit. So <clears throat> 32 feet tall. And uh, it's, it's sitting on two big, massive chunks of concrete. Massive chunks of concrete. This thing has a wind rating. that It's, it's hurricane wind rated. 120, 130 plus, I think we were figuring. This thing has got, uh, it's got a concrete truck of cement in each hole. That's how much weight's in each side. And these massive bolts, four feet long, gigantic columns of rebar. Dennis was down in the hole. We were joking about this before the service because Robbie wanted to jump in the hole and do the rebar work. And Dennis says, you're, you're not going down there. And Robbie says, well, why... Why can't I go down there and do it? I know what I'm doing. And Dennis says, that's not the point. The point is, statistically, you've got a lot more days left compared to me. And so if this thing comes in on anybody, it might as well be me. We're, we're not going to bury you down in there. Although maybe the thought crossed a few minds, but it didn't happen. But this thing sits on a huge, two huge chunks of concrete. Now, once it was all done, all the groundwork was done, and we had a little form at the top. Let me tell you what happened then. That's where the work really got meticulous. As we stood there, and I was, I was kind of Dennis's helper, one of there was a group of us, but uh, he got very fussy with the level. And um, if any of you know Dennis Allwine sitting right over here with the plaid shirt on, he has a tendency to be fussy at times over certain things. And you got very, very particular about that foundation. Why? We didn't want the leaning tower of Addy to be present, right? We wanted it to be right. So when that thing got stood up by a crane, there wasn't a lot of adjustment that needed to be made. Fractions, fractions of an inch of adjustment was all that was needed, primarily because, primarily because the foundation was right. And Paul is talking about that type of mental image in the lives of believers. That if the foundation is right, if the foundation is proper... If the foundation for the lives of, of God's followers is rock solid, is done right, it makes the rest of the building easy. Now, you could look up here and say, that's not my experience. <laughs> my life's not been that easy. We've gone through tough things. And you would be right. You'd be true. 
if the foundation of our spiritual walk is solid and right and built right, you will be able then to weather those storms. Or, if it hasn't been right, if it's been a little shifted, if it's been tilted, and calamity comes that way, it serves as a reminder then. Serves as a reminder. Hey, 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 something's not right with your foundation. Something's not right with your foundation. Now, what, what they couldn't do before, they can do now. And Dave Wantland had a patio that started to shift and turn and lean. And uh, didn't you hire somebody to come in? And they came in and fixed that, that whole slab, that whole foundation for your patio. Ran a, drilled a few holes, ran a tube down in there, started pumping a special liquid that sets up just like concrete. And they were able to actually lift, level, and bring that foundation back upright. Paul's using these as metaphors in kind of that same similar fashion. And the warning then is, is that carnal thinking causes a person to build with less than uh, uh, at an angle, at a slope. It won't be right. Not only that, as he talks about what's being used to be built with. Look at verse 12. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with he uses three examples, gold, silver, precious stones. Or he uses three more examples, wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become clear. Carnal thinking will cause a person to build with less than desirable materials. The question that we all have to face, the question that we need to think about for today, is what are, are you building your spiritual life with? What are you building the life of your family with? What are you building, fellas, into your marriage? Ladies, what are you building into the life of your kids as you raise them? What materials Paul's kind of bringing out? He's bringing out this in kind of a warning sort of a way. That, hey, you have options. I have options. What are you going to use? Are you going to use things like gold, silver, and precious stones? Now, when we think precious stones, we think of what? Rubies, diamonds. We think of that, when we hear the word precious stones, that's kind of often what we think of. I think from the first century perspective, things were built out of granite and marble. Those things were expensive. They were precious in the sense that, that it was expensive to get them there and to build these massive you know, uh, buildings that they had in the Greco-Roman world, these big displays, the Parthenon, and these huge temples, and all that goes with all of that. But it made it precious. It made it precious. Don't get to a point in life where you're frustrated with what you've built. That's kind of the warning in it all. The burnable materials. If you notice, the last three are all burnable. He says, but let each one take heed to how he builds. We want to build life with materials that will last. The materials that were used there and Corinth and Athens and other part of that world, they're still generally there. Now some of them tipped over, fallen down, earthquakes, you know, wars, some of that kind of stuff has taken its toll. But for the most part, those materials have stood the test of time, thousands of years. We want to build with materials. We want to build spiritually, he's saying. There's a spiritual application here. We want to build with materials that will last by using the figures of gold, silver, precious stones. Paul seems to have in mind here the building materials used in the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
Uh, you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 22, 14, 22, 16, and 20, chapter 29, verse 2. But the building <clears throat> is what God builds. The building is what God builds. Uh, we have a piece in that, definitely. And God puts together a building of his people. The idea of these precious stones, as I mentioned, they don't necessarily mean jewels, but uh, building materials. And the warning... The warning that I think that comes out of this passage is this warning. It's the warning that he's been talking about now for three chapters where he's, it's essentially can be summed up this way. Mixing worldly wisdom with godly wisdom in building your spiritual life doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mixing wisdom, the wisdom of men, the worldly wisdom with the wisdom of God in the work of building the church, and the work of building our lives, <clears throat> it's kind of like this. It's kind of use, like using alternate layers of straw and wood. It's kind of like doing that. Like, what, what would, would that sign even still be up if we decided, well, let's not use rebar and the four-foot-long bolts, but let's just put in like two feet of concrete. Then let's throw some wood blocks in there. And then we'll put a little bit more concrete. And we'll throw a bale of straw. We got bales of straw. It's cheap. It's real cheap to build with. What if we had done that? That sign would not be standing upright. When we use alternating layers of worldly wisdom, godly wisdom, worldly wisdom, God, it's the same picture. Paul's saying, hey, we can't do that. We can't do that. Then he asked this question. Paul asked this question in verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Paul's speaking here about the church, the people, the body of Christ. The house of God is viewed as a temple, as it were. Now, Sure enough, chapter 6, he's going to get into this idea as uh, that is true as individuals. But there's a sense in which that he brings up in chapter 3 that we are the temple collectively of God. We're the temple collectively of God. It, it, it can be applied both ways. In chapter 6, he applies it on the individual level. In chapter 3, he applies it in the collective level of the church. And any threat to steal from our national documents and any threat, foreign or domestic, against the church is taken seriously by God. Any threat, foreign or domestic, Paul is essentially describing, any threat, anything that comes against God's body is taken seriously by God. What do I mean? Where do I get that? Right there in the same passage. If anyone defiles the temple of God, the collection of his people, if anybody's in there causing what he described earlier as envy, strife, and division, guess what? Just like Romans 8, they're pitting themselves against God themselves. This is how serious he takes it. This is why it's important for us to, to get these things ahead of time and to be prepared ahead of time when those types of things start showing up at the door. Any threat, foreign or domestic, against the church is taken seriously by God. 
Paul concludes then, and we're going to conclude if the worship team kind of prepare themselves. I'll read quick in just the last few thoughts. Paul concludes with some heavenly wisdom then <clears throat> that encourages us to be spiritual men and women. Verse 18, he says this, Let no one deceive himself. So don't be self-deceived in this whole thing. Don't think that you got something going when you don't. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. That's God's perspective. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the word of life, or death, or things present, things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. The ending principle here that Paul brings out at the end of chapter 3 is this. If you think that you're all that, you're not. The minute that I think that I'm all there is, and that I'm all that, to use a cultural phrase, I, uh, I'm not. It's good to have people in our lives that remind us of that. <laughs> right? Like a little uh, cold water in the face. Works wonders sometimes. If you think that you're all that, you're not. If you're willing to trust God with how you look in the culture, uh, you're on the right track. If you, if I'm, if we're willing to uh, not stress about how we look in the culture, because as Christ followers, we look different. As Christ followers, we think differently. As Christ followers, we behave differently. I'm not talking rules-based Christianity. I'm talking following Christ by faith Christianity. It's going to lead to a different view, a different look. If you're willing to trust God with that, the Apostle Paul trusted God with that. As I've mentioned before, if you read all of the accounts of all that he endured through the book of Acts, you would look at this guy today and think, man, this guy's been just beat to a pulp. The beatings, the stonings, the whippings, the scourgings that he took. Like, that all shows. That's not all hidden under the cloak. He didn't care how he looked as long as he was following God. So if we're willing to trust God with how we look in the culture, then you're on the right track. A good way to explain, and kind of a parallel to verse 18 is what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, and 26, where he says this, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul uses that same exact principle of thinking, same exact mindset that Jesus has laid out here in the 16th chapter of Matthew. Paul applies it, here for the Corinthians church. Matthew 16.26 concludes this way, For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Rhetorical questions that Jesus puts out in front of his disciples. What good is it? Paul's kind of been saying the same thing. What, what good is all this worldly wisdom it's going to get you just so far. God's wisdom, God's ways, God's methods 
Understanding the world from God's perspective is a life changer. It's a life changer. And are we willing to, as believers, in the, this culture, and in the day that we live in, the day that God has ordained for all of us to live in, are we willing to live that same, with that same mindset the Apostle Paul had in the first century? Not stressing about how we look, doing what we're called to do. Trusting God with the difference. Let's stand and worship Him together as we close.